Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is our 87th video cast, 77th podcast for the week ending June 17th, 2021. And uh, kick off real quickly, it was a great week. We flew out to Omaha, Nebraska for the Olympic trials for swimming. And my girls are big swimmers. They're turning seven and nine today and tomorrow, respectively. So we're recording this a bit early and uh, to get on with the celebration. But I love to take them out to Omaha because I've been many times for the uh, Berkshire annual meeting. So I took them to Warren Buffett's favorite steakhouse, Gorat's, and they got to uh, take a photo with a cutout of Warren Buffett, as you can see here, but it was a great time and to share that experience with them. Uh, they also got to take pictures with Kieran Smith, who won the 400 free and the 1500 free while we were there. And the significance of Kieran is that um, my girls have the same coach that he had growing up, same club, uh, Ridgefield, Athletic, uh, Ridgefield Aquatic Club. And uh, Coach E, Emmanuel Alonzo, he's famous in the swimming world. And, uh, and so that was in the hotel in the Hilton right across the street from the convention center. Uh, as we were going back up to the hotel, very gracious, uh, new, new generation champion, uh, did wonderfully. He's going for the uh, uh, 200 IM tonight. Uh, unfortunately, we had to leave yesterday. We've got some things going on back here, but uh, just a great experience. So that was that. Actually, there were three people from her club, so it was pretty cool. AJ Bornstein uh, did incredible. This is Katie Ledecky, uh, who's, uh, well, I, I no introduction required. They got a photo with her, and then they got to swim in the Olympic pool, and that's their coach, uh, Coach Emmanuel Alonzo, who uh, coached Kieran Smith and A.J. Bornstein and, and all the other great swimmers that were out there from the club. Uh, so that was cool. Was, we were up at 4.45 in the morning to do that, but uh, cool nonetheless. That's the nine-year-old Mimi. And uh, moving right along to uh, some of the stuff, I just thought I'd share that with you. They also got to spend some time with Jason Lezak, Katie Mealy, uh, Maritza uh, Correa, and Katie Hoff. Some past Olympians were there. And uh, we had a couple nice receptions, met the CEO of uh, MGM, which was pretty cool. He's the new chairman uh, of um, uh, USA Swimming. So just uh, just a fun overall experience. So definitely tune in and root for Kieran tonight. But uh, getting right down to the um, uh, brass tacks here. First off, uh, we'll start off with media, but uh, just touch on it and then get drilled down into it in the article of the week. Want to thank uh, Ellie Terrett and Ash Webster uh, for having me on the Clayman Countdown, Liz, Liz Clayman's show, uh, both on Friday and on Mon on Tuesday, and uh, just a tremendous thing. And we're going to talk, we, we had a chance to talk about two tech stocks in those segments, among other things, with rates, with the Fed, with everything else, so we'll get into that. Also want to thank uh, Medicine and Devic Jane for including me in their article uh, uh, earlier in the week. And this was before the meeting. I said the market is looking for the Fed to not be dramatically alarmed about fears of inflation or move too soon with tapering. We're kind of in this Goldilocks situation where economic numbers keep coming in pretty good. Liquidity is ample. Fed is accommodative. And unless those things change, we shouldn't expect a big change in the stock market. And that's held true. 
We came off the G7 meeting this weekend, uh, and it fell in line with what were were my expectations that this administration was going to be hard on human rights and value-driven policy and um, maybe less stringent on economic policy with China than the previous administration. And that seemed to be uh, the case. Uh, they were focused on environmental issues, the Green Belt and Road, and then uh, strong G7 was stronger on values than hard cash um, and uh, talking mostly about human rights and no hard coalition to really counter China, which is why we one of the reasons that we're aggressively uh, adding uh, Chinese stocks. There are a number of reasons having to do with rates, having to do with timing, having to do with seasonality, having to do with valuation, which we'll get into. But uh, this was one of the things that we were looking for, a change in posture, and uh, we got it. Here was a note out of TechNode. Alibaba Cloud offers to build live stream shopping platforms for global clients. This is a big deal. We talked about it several weeks ago when I did a segment for CGTN America. Live streaming is huge in China. Uh, there were some recent crackdowns, but it won't materially affect the business. They were just normal safety precautions. You know, people over under 16 can't do it. If you're live streaming a product, you need to verify yourself, just basic uh, um, uh, guardrails to make sure that it's uh, it's done correctly. And this is a huge, huge growth business. Think of it as QVC on steroids and the uh, salesperson talking uh, versus it being on the TV screen. It's on the iPhone screen. It's streamed through the internet. And usually the salesperson taking questions live from the audience, as you know from QVC, uh, however, is a huge social media influencer or celebrity. So it attracts hundreds of thousands of people watching, if not millions, depending on the show. And it's a great way to sell products. Uh, what we saw this week was uh, the Chinese stocks really starting to feel a lot better. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, we've been talking about Chinese stocks for the last three weeks. A number of them have really taken off, like Li, like XPEV. Uh, you see these just huge moves. I mean, XPEV is, is getting close to doubling. Li, uh, similar 80 some odd percent. Uh, Neo, we didn't have any of, but uh, that's also had a nice move. JD today, this was a big change, guys. So this may be the catalyst we've been looking for on some of these Chinese names. Been buying the hell out of Alibaba in the last 24 and 48 hours. Uh, and that looks like maybe we're going to get a bid here, potentially a quote unquote double bottom, which we could care less about. What we care about is the fact that Earnings per share, cash flow per share, and revenue per share have doubled in the last three years, and you can buy it for the same price. And uh, it's got faster growth than uh, AWS in terms of their cloud business, faster international expansion. The only headwind had been rates, inflation fears, the Archegos uh, liquidation, uh, foreign policy, trade policy, which we got clarity on over the weekend. Uh, it's not going to be uh, with as many teeth as, as most had feared. And now that the government, Chinese government, has fined all the big tech platforms and put on new restrictions um, and they've paid their fines, now it's time to get on with business. Their consumer has been lagging and they need that to have a full recovery. So I think they're going to stop beating up on consumer platforms because they're going to need internal consumption to hedge 
any type of trade risk if a coalition does form, which it doesn't appear is anytime soon. So uh, nice to see that on Baba. Uh, Baidu, same thing to a lesser extent. These things look like they want to go, and we've been leaning in uh, like nobody's business. So uh, we're pleased to see that. Tencent Music still looks a little tired. Uh, IQ started to move. It's taking a breather. And then the education stocks are all taken out to the woodshed. Though this is going to be a case of sell the rumor, buy the news. All of these restrictions about they can't do weekends, they can't do nighttime, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're going to be announced next week, but but what the market is pricing in is a worst case scenario. And I think even at this point, if the if it got that worst case scenario, the stocks would rally. And if it got anything less than a worst case scenario, the stocks would explode to the upside. So because many of these like Tal, EDU, GoTo, uh, they're down 80, 90 percent. And what I've read is if the worst case of these uh, regulations is actually put into place next week, which who knows what can happen over the next week, but let's say it is, it would probably uh, shave off 30% of their business, which um, what's interesting about that is uh, it has shaved off 30% of their business, but many of these stocks are down 80 or 90%. So uh, God forbid if the if the ruling comes in lighter than expected, because right now the market's pricing in the worst case scenario, these things could be doubles very, very quickly. But, you know, it is a certainly a speculative. So you're not putting, uh, you know, 100% of your portfolio in praying. You know, you're doing one in, you know, one and one and a half percent positions and you know, maybe a basket to hedge. Uh, and then you get a, a good ruling or you get uh, you get through the bad news. They, you know, double and triple over the next six to nine months and you wind up a one or two percent position becomes, uh, you know, five, six percent gain in your portfolio. And that's a really, really good risk reward. So uh, so it's nice to see that. Nice to see, you know, Baba's are uh, become a, a very nice size position for us today. Someone came in with unusual options activity in Baba. A uh, thousand contracts for June 2023 at 170 strike. They paid 60. <clears throat> looks like about 67 dollars a contract. Uh, that gives them the right to buy a hundred thousand shares um, uh, of stock at you know 170 dollars. So this is a sizable position. And uh, good to see someone else is, is paying attention to the things that we're paying attention to besides Charlie Munger, who made it 20% of his portfolio in Q1. Uh, then what we've been talking about the last few weeks is what? Tech, uh, selected tech, uh, which we'd emphasize Splunk and Alibaba, um, SPAC warrants, and China. Those were our three things pounding the table. And we were saying all the late money that's pounding the table on banks and energy after they're up 100 to 150% are now going to get taken out to the woodshed in the short term before they resume a move higher to new highs later in the year. And that's exactly what's happening. You're seeing banks take it on the chin. Energy took it on the chin today. And the Fed was the catalyst. And we'll get into some of the Fed. Uh, so, so, um, uh, you know, most of you have been following this. You're up 100, 150%. You just ride this out. It's a 10 or 15% pullback on the uh, on the banks. Maybe it'll be 20%. If you shaved a little bit when we were talking about that three weeks ago, then you'll have a chance to add back. 
uh, and and uh, renew back up to a full position before the fall, where uh, I think we're going to resume this. And, and this is the beginning of a new cycle. So cyclicals are going to outperform, but we had anticipated this break over the summer and, uh, and we're getting it. And uh, I think it's going to set up for a great opportunity to add back and get back to a full position after shaving a bit a few weeks ago. So what happened? Here's the two to 10 year yield ratio. Uh, this has been our blueprint for um, you know pounding the hell out of these, uh, pounding the hell out of on the table last summer and fall. Bye, 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 bye. And then this went to the steepest it's been. And that's exactly what it does every single cycle. The green line here is financials. So this is completely normal. You get this huge rally in financials. You get a pullback, you get a huge rally, you get a pullback, and then even as the curve starts to flatten, guess what? You get huge upside in financials. Even as the curve starts to reflatten, you get huge upside in financials. So, um, so this is just a, a pause that refreshes, uh, and it should refresh towards the end of this year. And in the meantime, we're going to focus on what's going to work right now, which is what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. Uh, Carl Quintanilla put out, put this out over the week uh, weekend. Citibank U.S. inflation expectations are trending down, especially after a hawkish FOMC meeting. This was not a hawkish FOMC meeting, so we're going to talk about that as well. Ten-year uh, break-even, and the way we know it was was not a hawkish Fed meeting is if you think it's a hawkish Fed meeting, what would have what would have had to happen in order for, for it to be a dovish Fed meeting? So take the other side of the argument. And if there's anything that would have to happen for it to be a dovish meeting that didn't happen, then I must have been out to lunch. But I can tell you one thing. While they were at the morning qualifiers, uh, uh, I was in the hotel working and then I would be at the night finals and the, and the cocktail parties and the dinners, but the, uh, the night finals. So I didn't miss a beat. And I can tell you this was a dovish Fed meeting. So we'll, we'll, we'll break it down. Uh, good to see, though, inflation, uh, break-evens, uh, uh, d declined off of last month. So we hit peak inflation fears last month. As that rolled over, that was part of the premise for our uh, China tech and tech focus, selective tech focus, uh, which has, has so far been working quite well. Um, this is another factor. Here's what could happen when the $300 unemployment expires, according, according to Goldman Sachs. We've been talking about this for quite a bit, but they say that their best guess is that expiring benefits will provide significant tailwind to hiring in coming months, spurring more than growth of more than 150,000 jobs uh, over the summer, 400,000 jobs in September. And this is basically what we've been saying. This is one of the reasons the Fed had covered to do nothing yesterday is that we've missed jobs reports two months in a row. And even though 25 states have uh, uh, suspended or, or um, extinguished the extended unemployment benefits because they need workers, the other, they're only about 29% of the population. So the other 25 states that have it going through September, think New York, think California, think the states with huge populations and a lot of extended unemployment benefits. So these jobs reports are going to be probably miss expectations through September, and then it's going to pick up after that. Uh, what I want to do is shift gears into our Ask Me Anything questions, because we have quite a few this week, and they're pretty uh, sophisticated questions, and we'll, we'll deal with them one by one before we go into the economy, and then our article of the week. So, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, 
first one is from Greg Stewart. Thanks. Hi, Tom. Thanks for the market commentary this morning. Uh, he's referring to the article of the week, the Prince When Doves Cry stock market and sentiment results, which you would have been emailed this morning if you're on the email list. If you're not on the email list uh, for the free news newsletter, go to hedgefundtips.com and just fill in your email address either at the sidebar or uh, in the pop-up if you get a pop-up. So, uh, hi, Tom. Uh, thanks for the market commentary. Really helps to keep the emotions in check. My question for you has to do with scaling into positions. I really have been liking the strategy, but it trips me up sometimes. For example, I'm at a third of the position I want to have in Novartis, but it doesn't seem to be pulling back much, so I haven't continued to add. By the way, I'm glad you brought up Novartis because we've been that's a name that we've been talking about since late February, early March. And we fully expect this to take a second leg higher. So, so this is it. We put out the article the last week of February, early March. You can go back to all of our articles just here on the sidebar. Click on um, commentary or sentiment. It's in both categories. And it had just, you know, it, 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 it made a nice move from 82 to 88 uh, right after the article, and then it just basically ground sideways for two months. I said, this is going to take a second leg, this is going to take a second leg, and sure enough, it shot up to 94 uh, this week. I think this still has more room to run. I think these are really um, undervalued here, and as we, you know, with the oncology portfolio, as people are getting back into doctor's offices and going about business. There's such a backlog of pent-up demand, scripts, on-site administration, et cetera, testing that hasn't been done that I, I think these are going to plow higher. Um, so, uh, okay, so Novartis, so that one's working great. I think it can continue to work. Uh, doesn't seem to be pulling back much, so I haven't continued to add. Obviously, I don't want to miss out on the gains if it continues to rise, but I've made mistakes with other stocks by adding too quickly. For example, after Baidu pulled back a little, I filled out my position, but it continues to drop, so I think I should have been more patient. Um, okay, so, uh, anyway, back to my question. Is it best to wait for a significant consolidation before adding more to a position? Okay, I'm different in this. I never add up. I never scale up. Uh, I scale down. And um, so uh, there, what I would say is there's always an X trade. I, I would not be chasing uh, this up 10, 15 percent, uh, you know, looking to add. Do I think it's going higher? You bet. But would I be adding here? No, that's not my style. I mean, my, my thing would be, you know, if we were adding, this is exactly it, the last week of February, and then you had this huge spike down. That's where I'm adding to my position. In all these red bars as, as it's filling a base, that's where I'm adding. I'm not adding up here. Maybe I would add here, maybe, maybe on this pullback uh, and then take off. Depending, that would be a function of option pricing if we're not just using stock on this. Like if I could get option pricing near these levels back here, I'd definitely be adding because you've lost some time. But you know, fear comes back bigger here. So, uh, so I would just take a pass. I, I wouldn't scale up on these things or chase them or anything like that. As far as Baidu, I have no view on Baidu. Um, so, I, you know, I, I do my work. I have a view on what fair value should be. 
And then, um, you know, I, I add, I, and if it goes against me, I add some more. If it goes against me, I add some more. And then when it starts to turn, I'm not adding into that. I'm not, I'm just not doing it. I've, I've, I've laid the groundwork and now I just sit and wait, sit and wait and sit and wait until it gets to my fair value. And I know my exit before I enter. You know, you fight the battle before you go to war. Um, I know where I want it to be at fair value before I start to peel back, and et cetera. So, um, so I would say my suggestion is don't scale here. Uh, wait for the next uh, trade. Um, you know, this week, what, what, uh, by the way, perfect example. What were we doing this week uh, is scaling the hell into BABA. Okay, so we've been talking about it the last few weeks. We're buying, buying, buying. It took off. We weren't adding here. We were adding down here when you got these red bars. And then it kept going. Then it, then it rolled back over. We've been adding, adding, adding. And yesterday was a huge add. And maybe, maybe we're starting to put in the, the final bottom here to go higher. We'll see. Um, but I know where I'm thinking about what it should be worth in the next one to three years. And that's how, that's how I'm focused on it. On another note, you mentioned to me that I should look at the last 300 pins and PCNs that you suggested to see. Okay. So now he's referring to the trade service. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because, um, a lot of people that listen to this are either, um, uh, clients that are, have much bigger accounts or, uh, they're not trade service members or clients, uh, man, you know, uh, uh, money management clients. So, um, so I'll just touch on it briefly. Uh, the trade idea is if buying the underlying stock had similar gains to the vertical call spread, um, the difference is dramatic. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Anyway, so what he's saying is that, um, so the trade service client is a lot different from a $5 million account. Uh, that I manage the money for a trade service client usually it has a smaller account, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars or maybe a million bucks, and they are uh, taking a small portion uh, of of their wealth and they're they're looking for more immediate results. Okay, so we'll use in the money call spreads, in the money put spreads, uh, because it enables them to see results quickly. I would say. Uh, in the short term, on short term trades, which is what that client base is looking for, uh, that's a valuable way to do it. I make a lot more money over time in stocks because I can put a lot of money to work and I don't have to worry about the time factor. I know my fundamental thesis is right. If it goes against me, I can add more stock. Uh, but that's a different setup that, that clients benefit from on the money management side. So as far as why we do put spreads and call spreads, uh, it's to please a client that has a smaller account, a shorter time frame. Uh, and candidly, it's, it's a mindset. You know, clients that put five million plus with me, they are wealthy people and they understand that it takes one to three years for things to double and triple and uh, that type of thing. So uh, they expect that, number one. Number two, uh, they want all of their money working all of the time. So uh, you don't want to put 100% of anything in derivatives. You know, that's derivatives ha- are how you top up and you take, you know, 10% of a portfolio and you can, you can uh, top up the, the equity gains to enhance alpha. Uh, but you never would want to have a, time decaying asset as 100% of your exposure. It's just, you know, 
not not the way to do it. So anyway, um, uh, Greg answered his own question. He went back through you know three hundred trades, and he's like, "Wow, I can see why you do what you do, and there's a reason for for everything." So uh, great question, Greg. Hope that was helpful as far as scaling. I think that was a very very important question because uh, you know newer traders or people that don't do this 24 hours a day that may be experienced but don't do it often try to scale up and scale in um uh i've just found that you have to do your work you have to know what you own and the the time to scale is when it's in my view and my experience where i've had my biggest winners is is when you're confident on the thesis it's it's moving against you. You can add more at lower prices to bring your basis down. And then when it turns, then you just sit and wait. You don't chase up uh, after that. The market served up the opportunity of the century. You take advantage of it then. When it becomes less uh, of an attractive bargain, then you just ride it and you wait for the chasers to come in and they're going to be your liquidity in the future as it's up 30 and 50 and 70 and 100% over time. And and that's that's you know, the way that I think about it. Um, okay, from Shannon Sabin. Um, Tom, this Ask Me Anything is like one of those analyst questions on a conference call. It's one question broken down into a thousand sub-questions. Uh, and then I have a follow-up. I noticed the last several trade tips, okay, he's talking about the trade service. I, I'm going to try to answer this quickly then. Involved option spreads, and I'm wondering, by the way, all of the uh, hedge fund trade tips are option spreads, and and uh, it's basically the same questions as Greg as to why we do it. Um, he's asking, you know, why we choose what we choose and the months that we choose, and um, why we don't do combos of uh, you know butterfly spreads and all this kind of stuff. The bottom line is. I've just found over the years, as I've learned all that stuff, I've learned what to do, what not to do. The more complicated you make it, the less money you make. And um, it may sound sophisticated to do these multi-leg combos. And it, it's basically a way to sell a lot of commissions and uh, you know a lot of different things that uh, uh, the promoters do to get activity. And by and large, I found it to be a waste of time. I mean... What I'm giving you guys on the uh, on the uh, trade service side is basically my underlying thinking of the same thing I'm doing on the money management side. The money management side, I just get to put a lot more money to work and I, and I allow time to work for me because we're doing the, the underlying asset. Whereas the trade service side, the trade service people have smaller accounts and they want it quicker, instantaneous result. And that's why we use the in the money spreads. Uh, so that they can see results immediately and um, and benefit. Uh, however, the longer view is where you're going to make the huge money over time, and uh, and that that's uh, something you can develop. It's compounding and everything else. But uh, so Shannon, uh, you know, you should always learn all those things if they interest you. But what you're going to find when you come full circle five years from now is that. Um, Simplicity is best once you understand what you own, why you own it. As far as the time horizon, uh, there is math that goes into it, but sometimes it's just climate. It's, it's seasonality, it's sentiment, 
its uh, its exhaustion levels, buy and sell exhaustion levels, where um, you know after a patient has a heart attack, they're not running a marathon the next day. So you know some of this stuff will buy stocks that are down thirty and fifty percent. You know th- this is a heart attack for institutions that owned it, uh, and we're buying it from them from them as they're puking out. It's going to take time for for that confidence to rebuild. And that's why sometimes we'll we'll buy a longer dated expiry because we think it's going to take a longer time to uh, rebuild strength, to build a base, to get sponsorship uh, because we like to buy things very cheap. And uh, so the longer we think it's going to take to get back to some modicum of intrinsic value, uh, the longer dated the strike will be. And that's usually a function of how far has it fallen? How, you know, how long is it going to take to to rebuild that strength and then to get sponsorship around it? And usually it takes some time. But we do like to sometimes get uh, make the acquisition in the acute pain phase because you get dislocative uh, mispricing, particularly in some of the derivatives markets, uh, so that even if it does take time and time passes, we put enough time on that we still got... Uh, you know, the best pricing in some cases, if not close to it. Uh, ben, first name only, please. So no no last name for Ben. Hi, Tom. I appreciate your thoughts on the following t- on tonight's podcast. What's the latest on geopolitical risk of owning G- Baba stock? So uh, look, we covered a lot of it in the G7 uh, thing. The, the fear was that they were going to form a strong coalition and box China. The fact is that Europe needs China more than the United States does. So they're not going to to uh, go along with boxing China. As a result, China is going to do uh, just fine un, under this administration and uh, the, um, the loose coalition with Europe. Um, obviously, you could always have Taiwan risk. But the key here, Ben, and I think you've asked about these exogenous things, if you spend your life trying to figure out geopolitical events, you're bound to just get roasted because you can never predict geopolitical events with a great degree of accuracy. And even if you could, you actually don't know what the response of the market's going to be to those uh, geopolitical events. I think I remember reading... Um, Anyway, it was like it, it, there was some statistic where like the day a war started was was usually the bottom of the market when you would think it was the opposite where people would then start to panic. Oh, my God, we're going to war and sell everything. Uh, it's a sell the rumor, buy the news type of situation. And I think that's the case. There's a lot of bad news around China, which is reflected in the price of the basket, which is why we're interested. If there wasn't any bad news, then we'd be worried and the prices would probably be 50 to 75 percent higher. Um, okay. Uh, and where do you think Baba's support is before it turns up? $204 a share? Is $204 where institutional buyers will step in to defend? I have no idea. All I know is it's worth a lot more than $210 and I've been buying the hell out of it. So if it goes to 180, I'll be buying more. If it goes to 204, I'll be buying more. If it goes, if it, if this was the bottom today and it goes up to two. 90 over the next uh, 6 to 12 months, that's great. I'm fully positioned. Um, you know, I wouldn't get too cute with this stuff. If you're if you're playing for dollars like that, you're just going to kill yourself because uh, – your account rather because, you know, <laughs> what if you buy it at 204 and it goes to 199? Ooh, it broke 200. That must mean something mysterious and – uh, uh, you know, uh, spiritual number, it broke. Oh my God. It means nothing. The fact is 
Is the business growing? Is it trading at a multiple that's uh, outside the realm of its historic norm? And has growth slowed down that much to take that multiple outside of its historic, you know, 10-year ban or, or uh, in the case, seven-year band? And if if growth hasn't slowed enough to take the multiple outside its ban and it's trading below the low end, uh, well, then maybe you have an opportunity. So why, why is it trading below? So you got to get the bear case. Well, it's trading below because of inflation fears. Uh, you had the tech sell off. Archegos structural blow up huge liquidations of China stocks and, and funds blowing up all over the place. And prime brokers trying to sell it discreetly. But, you know, like a big elephant is discreet in the middle of a room. They're idiots trying to panic out of it uh, quickly. And everyone knows what they still have. And it's just this constant uh, drip, drip, drip until it's done. And I think the drip, drip, drip is possibly done. Um, and uh, and the Chinese heavy government heavy handedness. And I think they're coming to the conclusion that, wait a second, we're killing our consumers by killing our biggest platforms. Uh, we better wake up, particularly if we want uh, Ant to promote our digital yuan and uh, BABA to promote internal consumption so we don't have to rely on foreigners. We'll benefit and keep exports going, but God forbid something happens. We better have a strong internal internal consumption economy in China. Uh, so all of those things are baked in, and uh, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a great question, but if it goes to 204, great. I'll probably buy more. If it goes to 250, no regrets. I've built up enough in the last few weeks. And if it goes to 180, then, you know, I will probably uh, sell down other positions so I can get more BABA. I think I think there's a great opportunity here, but I don't know exactly where the bottom is. And I never really care. I just know where I think future fair value is over time, given the growth rates, given the multiple, given the climate, given the sector rotation, given, you know, 100 things that I look at uh, before I before I put a position on. And um, and that's exactly it. Uh, if a listener was starting a new investment portfolio with a hundred thousand cash, how much would you suggest to be allocated to Baba? You know, I look, this isn't something that I can, you know, I, I'm not going to go in like I did on Wells Fargo with 20% of portfolio. That was just crazy. But, um, you know, this is a high conviction position for us. So this is much bigger than normal. It's nowhere near 20%. I don't know what you should do. You should speak to a licensed, uh, a financial advisor that, 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 that can deal with that. But um, I'll say it's not 20% by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, you know, bigger than, than most positions that we've ever done. So we like it here. Um, uh, lastly, I'm very interested in your thoughts uh, on XOP over the next three weeks. No idea what XOP is going to do over the next three weeks. Uh, what I can tell you is for the last th- three or four weeks, I've been telling everyone that everyone's getting excited about energy. It's probably going to correct for the next three or four months, uh, pullback, and, um, and and that has started. I think it's just the beginning of the pullback. So, you know, uh, could it go to 85 or 80 or 70? Yeah, I think it could. I'd probably... I don't know if I'd buy more. I'm, I'm not selling any. Uh, we did trim a little bit of our energy positions um, in recent weeks. But, um, you know, if it came down to 75, I'd, I I don't know. I, I've got enough energy. So I'm, I'm kind of I don't I, I really don't know. I don't care. 
Where is it going uh, over the next three to five years? Higher, no question about it. Uh, they're they're going to cut supply. Demand is increasing. That's all you really need to know. Make sure you're not in, you, you know, you're in either a basket or you're in the biggest names. The big will get bigger. And think about this like the cigarette trade. You know, over the last 20 years, as cigarettes were regulated, Philip Morris and Altria had huge runs. They were two of the best performing stocks over the last 20 years. So no one would think that. The same is going to be true for uh, big big oil. So, um, so next three weeks, if, if I had to guess, like a gambler, which I don't, I, I'd say it's probably gonna ha- you know be a little heavy the next few weeks. Because why? Because all this, all the money chased it up a hundred percent, hundred fifty percent, and now they're the they're the dumb money, and they're puking it out because they have no uh, cushion. They're not up a hundred percent. If you're up a hundred percent and it moves twenty percent against you, you could care less. You'll just add on on weakness, or you'll just wade through. And knowing that we're in the beginning of a, a new business cycle, we're in the beginning of a commodity cycle, and over the next three to five years, this thing can be a lot higher. Same with the uh, servicers, OIH. And uh, and if it does get weak over the summer, it's a manna from heaven and an opportunity to get exposure if you didn't have enough. But great question, Ben, and hope that was helpful on both counts. And finally, Alan, uh, first name only. Hi, Tom, I'd like to echo... St- uh, sentiment someone shared recently. Your video cast is also the highlight of my week. Um, the education in investing you are giving us is nothing short of stunning. Thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. It does take a lot of work to do this, and I'm happy to do it because it, it is helping a lot of people. Here's an ask me anything question uh, for you. I have some Splunk, and I'm pleased to say I didn't puke it out when it dropped suddenly after its earnings report. Unfortunately, I didn't have the resolve to buy more when it fell to $111 a share. Uh, You mentioned a firm called Summit upgraded Splunk to the price target of $160. So can you share some wisdom on which firms or analysts to rely on when looking for reasonable estimates of future share prices and better to go with one reputable analyst in a particular sector or go with consensus among a group of analysts? Um, I think, you know, I don't rely on any analysts. Analysts are useful to me. See, when I'm buying a stock, very few analysts want what I'm buying. They've already thrown in the towel. That's Those are the kind of stocks I'm interested in. So where analysts are helpful to me is in my exit. Because when the stock's up 50 to 100%, they become cheerleaders and they become excited and they miss the 50 or 100% of the move and they start to get excited when it's up like, like they're doing with energy stocks now. And they create the liquidity from all the new money that's getting excited by their cheerleader reports because they're also wanting to get investment banking business from these companies because they can now raise cash capital, they can do debt offerings, they can use their stock as a currency to do M&A deals. Uh, so they're pumping that up after it's already up 50 to 100%. And, and, um, and, that, and I use that excitement to be my liquidity. So um, as for this um, outlier guy from uh, uh, Summit, look, it's just one data point in a thousand. I would never make a decision on the basis of one analyst. Um, uh, but it does show kind of a first turn uh, where people who spend their life looking at a handful of companies start to see some of the things that I see after it's up 10% off the bottom. So, you know, uh, the answer to your question is, will I look at 12-month target price just to get an idea? Sure. 
Uh, will I look at consensus earnings? Absolutely. I, you want to look at as many as possible. I would never, ever put weight. Like if, the, if, this, if I would weight this, it's probably a 2% weighting out of 50 other data points that I look at, if that, on a good day. And it doesn't matter what firm they're at. Um, and two, perhaps the best way to estimate a stock's price is with a discounted cash flow analysis, but this requires many assumptions is too complex for many of us. Any other methods or back-of-the-envelope calculations you'd like to help establish a rough price target as a safety check on analyst predictions? Um, you know, I just look – I don't – you can't operate with a scalpel. You have to operate with a crayon, and you have to get to a point where you've, you've effectively run out of sellers and you believe the business is going to grow. Sometimes things are cheap because they should be cheap. They're decelerating earnings, decelerating revenue. <laughs> no clear turnaround plan in sight, um, no acceleration happening. So you basically want to see pessimism get to a level where everyone's sold and they're so pessimistic that even though the data is turning in a material way, they still won't buy it because they're so angry about how much money they lost on the way down. And that's basically how I think about it. Um, you know, with these, the reason I don't trade stocks like or, or invest in stocks like Splunk in general is because there is no way to value them. To be perfectly candid, I mean, you know, so if it, if it was trading at 10 times revenue and now it's trading at five times revenue, is that really a bargain? Who the hell knows? I mean, it could go to zero times revenue. But if you look at history and you look at the transitions from you know, this is kind of a special situation in terms of uh, some of the other cloud companies like Adobe and Microsoft, by the way, is a great example. When they made the transition from licensing and software to cloud and subscription, it was bumpy as hell. And when, once they turned the corner, the company became two, three, five, ten times more valuable than it had been with the same customers on the licensing and subscription model. And I believe that that is what Splunk is going through on the enterprise dating my data mining and security businesses that they have. Uh, and the acceleration is evident in the earnings. It's just that, uh, you know, it's hard for people to, you know, analysts, analysts have job risk when they get something wrong. And the, and the, and the fact is, you know, when it was up in the 200s, everyone was touting it as the best thing since sliced bread. So then when it rolls over 150% and guys like me are buying it, uh, these guys can't get behind it because they almost lost their job from promoting it 100% higher. Uh, I mean, it's fallen 50%, but it would be 100% to get back to those levels. Uh, so it takes them a long time. So what's going to have to happen for them to start to get on board again? It's probably going to have to go up 50 to 100% from here before the analysts come back on board. And that's probably when we're going to be laying off some of our stock as as they do the cheerleading for us. So, um, you know, it's nuanced because the way that I would value Coca-Cola or Wells Fargo or Viacom or, you know, Exxon is completely different than how I would value um, Splunk. And Splunk is just a special situation that you, one, have to have just experience and feel of the cycles for when selling seems to be exhausted. Two, you have to get your hands, you know, read five 10Ks, five annual reports, read the last eight to 12 
um, uh, earnings transcripts so you can understand the transition. View his media interviews where they're trying to highlight the most important things in a short period of time and they're prepping for that five-minute segment and they have to cover a lot of good data in a short amount of time to get their message across to investors. And when you do that mosaic and you feel you have enough margin of safety, then if you still feel that you're operating in the dark but you think there's a good enough margin of safety, uh, then you have to manage risk by how big you size it. I'm not sizing Splunk the same way I'm sizing Baba. Baba, I can better understand the earnings growth and the multiple and the the history and understand the business and how it's growing than I can with Splunk. But Splunk is a unique, special situation that I think was the risk-reward was manageable and that I wanted to be involved in. So, um, so I know that's not a clear cookie cutter thing that you can use, but you value different sectors and different levels of growth in a different way. I mean, companies with no earnings and just multiples of revenue are valued differently than companies with earnings. And uh, companies with earnings and slow top and bottom line growth are valued differently than companies with earnings and fast top and bottom line growth. And that gets into peg ratios, price to earnings growth, and what are you willing to pay? Are you willing to pay one times earnings growth, which means you know a company growing earnings at 20% would trade at a 20 times multiple, but then you have to factor in, well, what, what's the discount rate? You know, as you, as you alluded to, uh, you know, maybe one times peg is entirely too cheap in an a, a, a environment where capital is free. And maybe one times peg is too expensive where in an environment where uh, the 10 years trading at 5%. So you have to adapt to all the variables. Uh, but I think you get to a point where if you buy enough quality that's on sale, you're going to do exceptionally well over time. The exception was in 2009 to 2019, where for the first time in history, uh, companies that were trading at 10 times sales with no earnings um, outperformed companies that were actually growing earnings and, and doing good business. And that was largely a function of uh, cost-free capital. And it seems like we're, we're still in that environment of cost-free capital, but demographics are now going to push us toward in the next few years, I think, with the uh, millennials, 72 millennials around uh, 30 years old, the demand for capital is going to go up, which means the price for capital is going to go up. And in that type of environment, um, those type of stocks will will come to a more reasonable valuation and the companies that actually generate cash will have a higher premium uh, because cash has a cost. So... Um, it's dynamic by sector, it's dynamic by group, it's dynamic by an individual stock's history and the range of valuation that it's historically traded in relative to its growth. And um, and we take all those things into account. And then, you know, the other thing is 50% of any move is the market, another 30% or 20% is the sector, and then 20 or 30% is the individual stock. So I hope that helps. Um, uh, but that's that's kind of how we think about that. And that's why we don't do a ton of them. But Splunk for us, it just seemed a little too attractive at these levels to pass up. And, and we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But, uh, 
you know, that, that call when it puked on earnings was down 10% and I came on the podcast the next day and said, we bought some, uh, you know, who knows if it was going to hold. It's, it's held so far and that's a good thing and we, we're very comfortable with our position um, and we'll see how it goes. But we, we know that enough of the pain has been priced in and with the acceleration of the business, uh, I, I, was, I was pretty comfortable to, to lay into it there. Okay, moving right along. This is from LPL, Ryan Dietrich. A couple of things that I that he noted today that I thought were interesting. The bi- bipartisan infrastructure deal is still alive. Odds of a bipartisan deal have increased after 11 Republican senators reportedly signed off on the latest proposal of roughly $600 billion in new spending. We still consider a bipartisan agreement unlikely given the difficulty of getting all Senate Democrats, uh, sorry, Democratic senators on board. Some Democratic senators are concerned the plan doesn't go far enough or that it may impede their ability to get all of their priorities through Congress later this year under reconciliation. And more than $2 trillion in infrastructure and social spending partially paid for by taxes increases starting in 2022 remains our base case. So they're saying that they think they're going to push through the whole $2 trillion, which has kind of been my view when I made that quote to Reuters a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, I don't even know why the Republicans go through the motions. Um, elections have consequences, and it's likely they're going to just slam this through reconciliation because they won. I mean, that's that's what it comes out to. Uh, so uh, biggest earnings gain. Uh, now, this is an interesting thing uh, they also mentioned over at LPL. Biggest earnings gains in 2021 still expected to come from outside the United States. This is another factor in our China thesis. Uh, S&P earnings are expected to grow by a very strong 35% in 2021, up from 18% expected on January 1st. However, developed international looks even a bit better with 38% earnings growth expected for MSCI EAFE index this year, up 19 from 19% expected at the start. The upward revision to consensus earning growth estimate for the emerging markets based on the MSCI emerging markets index has been a bit smaller, but still strong at 16 percentage points. But emerging market earnings are expected to increase a whopping 43%. And a good way to that is China. Our regional tactical views are aligned across the board, but we wouldn't be surprised if developed international developed international markets outperformed in the second half based on strong earnings rebounds we expect and our preference for value. So, um, you know, that's that's just some more points of view that kind of is in line with how we're thinking about things for the back half of the year. Moving right along to our article of the week, when prints, the, the prints, when doves cry stock market and sentiment results. Uh, in eight, 1984, Prince released this uh, single on his Purple Rain album. It was his first Billboard 100 hit, held the top spot uh, for five weeks. We thought we would refer to some of his famous lyrics uh, to wrap our arms around the Federal Reserve decision this week. And uh, the lyrics we chose were, this is what it sounds like when doves cry, when doves cry, doves cry, doves cry. And that's exactly what we saw with the dot plot, which we're going to cover in a couple of minutes. Um, First, though, I'd like to uh, go through Tuesday. I was on uh, the claim and countdown on Fox Business with... Ash Webster, thanks to uh, Ash, Ellie Terrett, and Liz for having me on. And I was asked to speak about my expectations regarding the Fed action on Wednesday in the face of what were hot PPI numbers that day, producer price index, and CPI numbers uh, before that. (coughs) And our expectation, uh, the show notes we sent over, were proved to be accurate. So a couple of things you want to know. The Fed... 
or you, you may already know, the Fed has a dual mandate, price stability and maximum sustainable employment. Uh, looking back to February of 2020, the unemployment rate was just 3.5% the month before pandemic started here uh, with 5.7 million people unemployed. Today, that unemployment rate is still 5.8% with 9.3 million unemployed. Now, part of that is due to the extended unemployment. Part of that's due to a mismatch of skills and jobs. You know, if you look at the job openings, there's more jobs available than unemployed people. So why aren't they taking them? Again, I'd say probably half of that has to do with the uh, will be resolved after September. The other half is kind of the friction of the skill set and they'll work through that. But he's committed since day one that he'll let the economy run hot. His number one job is to make sure that anyone who wants a job can have a job and he's going to let it run hot until that happened. And that's exactly what he did. Now, how did he have cover to do that in the face of a high PPI and high CPI? Well, he had a few things. Number one, the recent, uh, the last two jobs report, non-farm payrolls missed expectations uh, two months ago by a huge margin, last month ago by a large margin, but not huge. And the reason that it narrowed a bit was because 24 of the states right after that huge miss two months ago um, extinguished the extended unemployment benefits through September. So that helped the most recent month. And uh, so now there's 25 states left that still have it, which is going to probably keep the jobs report missing through September, which gives the Fed cover uh, to, to continue to delay talking about tapering um, until probably after September. Uh, and implementing sometime in 2022, where everyone was so certain they were going to do it in 2021. Now, uh, that's number one. Number two, you had lighter retail sales than expected because the stimulus checks rolled off. And three, I think maybe the most important is that copper, lumber, and grains have all rolled over in the last four weeks and have softened materially. And we had been saying that um, that was uh, certainly reason for cover, number one. Number two, we thought that oil would also show some weakness over the summer because you'd move into a seasonal weakness period after Memorial Day, uh, number one. And number two, uh, that an Iran deal would be announced and that would uh, take some take some um, strength out of the oil market. In the short term, um, OPEC will still backstop it. Uh, increased regulation in the states will still backstop it. But there's a lot of late money into the energy, tr- in, into the energy trade And uh, as such, um, we felt that over the summer that the air was going to have to be taken out of it because, uh, you know, all the people who were extremely pessimistic on the sector last summer and fall before the election when we were hammering to get exposure, get exposure, get exposure, uh, have recently been excited in the last few, you know, month, month and a half. And, uh, And when you have that much new money come in, it just always happens when you get that crowded that they just take the air out of it to knock the late money out who don't have the margin of profits, uh, knock them out, and then uh, and then take it higher, which I think we will make new highs by the end of the year. But I think the next few months are going to be bumpy. Um, so what I said was that this w- these factors would give them cover to keep rates at zero until 2023. And defer tapering, reducing the $120 billion a month of asset purchases until 2022. That seems to be holding true. That's dovish as hell. Now, 
that means that yield-sensitive groups which fell on inflation and tightening fears earlier this year, tech, utilities, staples, and healthcare, could begin to outperform the groups that led the beginning of the year, energy and financials uh, being up you know, 30 and 40-some-odd percent as sectors um, relative to these others that were up single digits. And for the market to power to new highs, big tech, which is over 20% of the weighting of the S&P 500, is going to have to participate this summer, which is probable considering the Fed's likely to remain dovish, and they did. Uh, And then I put in underlining, uh, always be cautious of responding to the first move after the announcement. So if you remember, the first move was tech sold off. And when we wrote this last night, late last night after coming in on the plane, um, futures were down across the board, but NASDAQ was down biggest, which was also the case after the announcement. Yields were up, uh, equities were weak, commodities were weak, and that changed. Whereas today, tech finished up big, the NASDAQ finished up, I think, close to 1%. Dow was off, and uh, banks and, and energy started rolling over. So, this was the catalyst for what we've been talking about and getting ready for for the last three weeks. And the first move was the wrong move yesterday, and today we got uh, follow-through in the right way. Yields came in, and these yield-sensitive groups, I think, are going to be bid all summer before the reflation trade comes back at the end of the year. <clears throat> now, they asked me to talk about a stock uh, in the segment. So after grinding sideways of one year for one year, we like Amazon for U.S. tech. Amazon AWS grew 32% year-on-year, but their other business, which is mostly advertising, grew 77%. It's now 2.4 times bigger than Snap, Twitter, Pinterest, and Roku combined. Uh, We also like the Chinese Amazon Alibaba because you can buy it at 2018 prices, despite the fact the business model has doubled revenue, cash flow, and earnings per share over the three-year period. We think these groups, tech, utilities, healthcare, staples, will do better in coming months. The reflation trade, energy, financial, cyclical should come back strong again toward the end of the year as tapering becomes more imminent in 2022. So when doves cry, um, so that's what we anticipated would happen. Here's what happened. Uh, While the Fed remained on hold with even talking about tapering, uh, and Chair Powell stated that you could view this as the meeting that they were talking about talking about tapering at some point in the future, nothing changed in his commitment to keep the pedal to the metal until full, full employment is achieved. However, his colleagues started to blink. These are the crying doves when the doves cry, uh, Prince, when doves cry. You can see in the dot plot below, it showed 13 of 18 officials favored at least one rate increase by the end of 2023 versus seven in March. That's in line with our thinking some point in 2023. That's not a surprise. Now, Chair Powell, though, totally discredited the dot plot because he came out. I mean, he couldn't have been more dovish. So whoever misinterpreted this got it wrong, and that was evidenced in the market action today. Uh, Chair Powell largely referred to this projection, the dot plots, as unimportant during his Q&A. Quote, the dots should be taken with a big grain of salt, Powell said, referring to interest rate forecasts. He cautioned that discussions about raising rates would be, quote, highly premature. The FOMC raised its projections for economic growth. GDP was seen expanding at 7% this year, up from a prior projection of 65 If you remember last year, we were like the lone voice in the woods, summer of last year, talking about 6% GDP in 2021. And now it looks like it's going to be 7%. Uh, the market... Uh, And the Fed maintained the 2022 expansion forecast at 3.3 and raised the 2023 to 2.4 from 2.2 in March. Um, Okay, the market responded with dollar up, rates up, equities and commodities softer. We covered that. And 
the, uh, okay, as I alluded to in the show notes on Tuesday, the first move is not always the correct move. The Fed effectively took itself out of the market until 2022. It'll take a few days to digest. Maybe it only took one day. But our sector views for the summer have not changed. Part of this is due to sentiment and positioning among institutional managers. Now we're going to break into the monthly Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey that we always emphasize. We think this is a very important piece of uh, research that they put out every every month. Uh, it covers 207 managers managing $645 billion in assets under management. And the point that I made, and for those of you who are on the podcast, you're going to get cut off in a minute at minute 60. Just go to hedgefundtips.com and you'll see the video cast there. It's a YouTube video. Just fast forward to minute 60 and you'll pick up exactly where you left off word for word and you can catch the last five or 10 minutes, as well as if you wanna rewind back and look at some of the charts that we've covered on the Chinese stocks and that type of thing, uh, feel free to do so. So um, when we were aggressively touting cyclicals in this, uh, so the biggest takeaway from this survey was when we were aggressively touting cyclicals in the summer and fall of last year when no one wanted them, everyone wanted big tech and big tech has done nothing for 12 months. So now that institutional managers have reluctantly capitulated into cyclicals after 100% plus moves and dropped exposure to tech, we know everything we need to know for our next step. We've been talking about adding selective pockets of tech for the past few weeks. Fund managers are now 